<laughs> Somebody was clapping on four. <laughs> I, I don't know who that could have Somebody been. was doing the jazz clap. Yeah. It's true or more. It's either Skype lag or somebody has no coordination at all. It's like whoever that was, imagine you at the school disco. It wasn't a pretty sight. Right, let's do one more. Yeah. One, two, three. Did we have two claps? <laughs> was there two? I have no idea what just happened. Before we actually get started on the podcast proper, I just wanted to mention something that our friend, friend of the web, your previous boss, Kenneth, Richard Rutt is doing. Hmm. Because uh, if you don't know Richard, listeners, and you really should, he is one of the founders at Clear Left, and he's also a real authority on web typography. And do you remember years ago, he started translating Robert Bringhurst's uh, Elements of Typographic Stylebook for the web. Um, he started a website doing that, and it was brilliant. And now he's writing his own web typography book, and from what I've seen... And from what I know about Richard, because he's such a perfectionist, it's going to be incredible. I'm really, really looking forward to it. And today, or recently, when this podcast goes out, he's launched a Kickstarter, which is going to help him shoulder the cost of editing and production and the initial print run, because he's decided to self-publish, which I really think is a great idea. And I've backed it. And I think if you care about a good web typography you might like to back it as well. So I'll put a link in our show notes there at unfinished.bz slash 112. And he's not paying me to say this. I just wanted to mention it because I just think it's such an awesome project. Oh, that's very cool. I saw somebody, I saw Greg's story tweeting about it last night, about a link to the Kickstarter. That's very cool. No, I know that he's been writing about web typography and talking about it for a long, long time. And I think this book in various forms has been on the cards for a while. So... I think, from what I read, he's going to try to get it out before the Ampersand Conference in Brighton in November, which I also bought a ticket to today. That's an ambitious deadline. <laughs> uh, I hope he can do that. That's great. No, I think he's got the outline pretty much already done. But you're right. It's a massive undertaking to do in what are we now? Five months. Yeah, that is, that's, a, that's a tough one. <laughs> Hopefully he's written a lot of it already. <laughs> Well, he has been mooting it for ages. How long did it take you to do your undercover book? Um, well, it was about a year end to end, um, from signing the contract to actually getting our hands on the thing. The writing process itself, like maybe two or three months to do the writing and another three months to do the editing. Um, because editing is writing, as we all know. Um, yeah, so maybe six, six, uh, six months of actual, you know, every evening, every weekend, heavy, heavy work. Did you do it alongside? client work or day jobs yeah clear left gave me one day off a week um likewise with james uh to help you know focus some time on, on that but yeah it was alongside client work so that was a particularly tough time <laughs> in my life to be honest yeah it was not not an easy thing to do that's a really good thing for clear left to have done actually yeah yeah absolutely and they were accommodating and generous and so on i mean they they also hopefully get a benefit from having uh people in their employ you know publishing books and uh, being seen as authorities on topics of course hopefully there's some some sort of uh, fallback for them on that but um yeah it was it was good of them they didn't have to do that so i was very grateful for that opportunity have you got another one planned no not at the moment i tried and failed to write a second one a couple of years ago uh, i actually wrote twenty five thousand words of it but i was further away from the end than when i started it was one of those um 
and it just it was taking taking me into territory I didn't really want to go to be honest uh, as as a writer and as a designer uh, it was just too much so I may do something smaller at some point in the future but um no 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 plans at the moment well Sue has threatened to hunt down and kill anybody that asks me to write a book in the future because I am mm-hmm. such a bastard when I'm writing <laughs> I'm reminded of that quote I can't remember I wish I could remember who who it was by um but a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people. And I quite like that. And that really sums it up. I think if you find writing enjoyable, then you may not be that good at it. I think some people, it just feels so effortless. I mean, I don't want to, you know, butter his buns, but Jeremy, his writing just feels completely natural, completely effortless. And Jeffrey Zeldman is probably the same, but for me, it's like pulling teeth. Yeah. No, I'm the same. It's, it's, it's agonizing. I love having written. Um, but I don't enjoy the writing process really at all. I maybe the editing process because you know, you're improving the quality and the density of, of your prose. But, uh, oh, it's, it's, it's hard work. It's not something I look forward to when I wake up in the morning. Have you got a book in you, Noah? You know what? I would, I've, I've planned to, to write something, but. I'm torn on the idea. I, I love the idea of it. Um, you know, Ken saying he, he wrote 25,000 words and, and but that's, that's a lot of words. That's a lot of writing. I'm not sure if I'm disciplined enough really to get it, to get it done. Um, it's kind of interesting. I mean, this industry in books, uh, we change so quick. There's, you know, like by the time you finish it, that's, you know, unless it's kind of like a really lasting topic. And what I wanted to write on was just kind of, fundamentals of CSS, things that are overlooked because all we talk about is the latest and greatest technologies that one browser supports or something like that. And, you know, but what about these fundamentals that you could build a, a career on the fundamentals? And so I wanted to do something that perhaps could be more lasting like that, like like this book on web typography. That's going to be great because that's a lasting topic, you know. Um, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Is you know, I, I got kids. I got jobs. It, you know, time. <laughs> I don't have a boss telling me that there I could... There are other things to do in life. Yes. I know. Yeah. Well, on a related topic, just talk about plugging things, I just want to, if we may, I just want to talk about podcast sponsorship for a minute because I decided at the beginning of this year that I wasn't going to have any paying sponsors for the show this year because, you know, the money that we actually get from sponsors, to be honest, doesn't justify the time it takes to look after them. So I, I don't do this for the money. But I have, I've mentioned Shopify a couple of times this year and people have asked. So I thought I'd just mention why and, and what's going on because, uh, I'm not mentioning them because they're paying me. I mentioned them because we're actually doing a project right now that involves Shopify and I really like using it. So that's why I talk about it. And it gave me this idea that from now on, I'm not going to do paid sponsorships. I'm just going to mention something that I really like, whether it's a product or a service, and it might be something from our industry, or I'll probably talk about the people that I buy my shaving supplies from Cornerstone, because they're really, really good. And just got me thinking, it's nice to kind of get things in the post. Sometimes I don't do this for the money, but if people have got a product or a service or something that they think I'm going to like enough to talk about, let me know, you know, email me. He has at unfinished dot bz and you know send me something and if i like it i'll you know i think the listeners will like it then you know i might talk about it 
So that's my plan for sponsors. I'm not going to do paid stuff because people keep asking, you know, oh, can you, you know, can we sponsor, you know, can, can we pay for a sponsor spot for, you know, our conference or, or, you know, book launch or something like that. And I'm, I'm kind of not doing that. But if you want to send me something that I think might be cool to, to talk about, then, you know, that will be fine with me. And I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping that Nika, who make Planet of the Apes action figures, I hope they're listening, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I knew there was some kind of primate angle here. I haven't got enough of those things. <laughs> That's for you to determine when you have enough of these things. Other people may have different views. Box arrives <laughs> and Sue goes, oh no, not more plastic crap. <laughs> right. <laughs> Honestly. So I suppose, a few minutes in, that I ought to introduce the pair of you to our listeners, because this is the official bit, right? This is the part you'd hear if this podcast was as good as something on the BBC. <laughs> So here goes. Are you ready? Sure. Yeah. See if I get this right. I'm going to put my radio announcer voice on. My guests today are product designer at Creative Market. That's a platform for design content from independent creatives around the world, all the way from San Francisco, Noah Stokes. How was that? That, uh, that was great. I, I may just cut that out and use it as a personal business card. Play it for people. <laughs> Loved it. And because product designers are like buses, you wait forever, and then two of them come along at once, <laughs> formerly of Clear Left and Twitter. I don't know what he does now. He's a man of leisure. He's a man of mystery. Digital product designer, Kenneth Bowles. Hello. And you got the pronunciation correct, so thank you. Well, I live in Wales, so we ought to know how to say Kenneth. That's true. But even then, many people in Wales wouldn't know how to say that. So it's always nice when someone makes that special effort. So thank you. Have you been to Wales recently? Let me think. A couple of months. Uh, I was there for football toward the end of the season. Actually, that may have been December, something like that. I haven't been yet this year. I need to visit my dad at some point. Oh, and I'm also doing um, uh, a quick a quick talk at Design Swansea um, in a few weeks. So that'll be my chance to turn up on stage in Swansea wearing a Cardiff City shirt. There's design in Swansea? Apparently so. Um, I don't know too much about this, the scene there, so I'm looking forward actually to to seeing what is happening there. It'd be great. Actually, I take the piss, but I've never been to Swansea. I've, I've been once or twice. Um, I prefer Cardiff as a as a Cardiff boy, but um, I'm sure there are many fine people <laughs> from Swansea as well. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. Very diplomatic in my views. I, I, Swansea's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, things that we could talk about today. I'm sure that we're not going to be short of a few things to talk about, but mm. we could talk about this whole web design has lost its soul issue topic that Noah and I have been writing and talking about over the last year or so, and a bunch of other people that I've discovered as well. It's sort of resonating, I think, with uh, with a certain sector, perhaps, of designers. Uh, so we could talk about that. We could talk about perhaps the distinctions that there may or may not be between product design and web design and mm -hmm. why it's never a good idea to make statements on Twitter and expect people not to argue with you. That could be a thing. <laughs> oh, there's, there's loads of stuff that we could get to, loads of things that we could get to. I'd just like to take a moment to thank Shopify for supporting us. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but for years we avoided taking on e-commerce projects because... Well, dealing with the technical issues was way less interesting than the creative work that we like to do. And recently, we've started working on e-commerce sites again, and the reason for that is Shopify. There are over 165,000 stores running on Shopify today, and that means that there's a lot of work out there for designers and developers who create and customize Shopify stores. 
And there's not only demand for Shopify-focused designers, because Shopify also helps designers and developers grow their businesses through the Shopify Partner Program. And it costs absolutely nothing to create a partner account, and you can open an unlimited number of test stores to try out the Shopify platform. Shopify offers its partners an enormous amount of free resources too, including newsletters, the Shopify blog, workshops, discussion forums, marketing materials, and advanced access to new features. And if that's not enough, Shopify have just released a book about how to grow your design or development business. And the book's called Grow, and it's got 11 chapters by industry experts about how to attract clients, draft contracts, close deals, and more. Even my contract killer gets a mention. You can now download a free copy of Grow. Click or tap the link in the show notes to get yours. That's unfinished.bz. And that's where you'll find the show notes. And that's Shopify. Thanks a lot. So anyway, I suppose while we're sort of plugging independent content, we could talk about your visual essentials for product design workshop, which I'm really, Mm. really bloody annoyed, Kenneth, because I really wanted to attend. Mm. And... I don't know. You just planned the date so badly. You didn't. You didn't ask me in advance when I'll make, I may or may not be around, right? I didn't. No. No, I know. So I'm going to be in France, sunning myself on a lounge chair while you're. Te- it's such a shame. That's a tough call to make, actually. You know, attending a day long workshop versus sunning yourself on a on a lounge chair. Oh, no, trust me, there was no competition. Honestly, <laughs> for sure. Well, thanks for thanks for plugging it. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'll put a I, link in the show notes. Yeah, it's been nice. There's been a lot of. Uh, quick sales. That's great. So I'm sure I'll run it again at some point soon. Yeah. Well, just for the listeners, what we're talking about is visual essentials for product design. It's a one day workshop for digital designers wishing to improve their visual literacy or UX and interaction designers looking into, looking to move into full stack product design. I'm actually not sure what that means. Well, that I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, a bit later on. Uh, that's essentially. You know, and I started tweeting about that whenever it was a couple of days ago. Um, that caused some lively debate, shall we say. So, um, I'm sure that'll come up. So I'll, I'll have a chance to explain what that is in more detail. Cool. And you're running that. I think it's sold out now, isn't it? For July. Uh, first one sold out in July. Um, but I'm now doing it in, in Dublin, Budapest and Brisbane. And I'll be doing it again in London and possibly Manchester later in the year as well. So Kenneth.com will have all the details, hopefully. Wow, Brisbane will be cool. I've done workshops mm. in Brisbane. It's a funny, but fabulous place. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it's a long way to go. So obviously I'm going to hopefully pick up a few other places en route. I'm just sorting out my itinerary now. Have you been before? Not to Brisbane. I've been to Sydney previously. Ooh, okay. Yeah, no, I think you'll enjoy it. It has a beach in the middle of the city. Hmm, I can live with that. <laughs> not, not a natural beach. They, I think it was for some Olympics or another. They right. basically made a man-made of course, man-made hmm. beach sort of on the river right in the middle of the city centre. And, you know, office workers come down from their offices at lunchtime and, you know, walk down to the man-made beach and have an ice cream. And it's really cool, actually. Well, why wouldn't you? You know, <laughs> if the if the temperature's never really below 20 degrees, then you might as well, you know, have a beach wherever you can. Are you going to, you know, take a little bit more time and maybe go to, I mean, you're over that side, you might go to Melbourne, which is it's like Brighton in Australia. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm Melbourne's actually uh, looking plausible. I just gotta, I just gotta see if I can get the flights to work, uh, and hopefully I'll spend a couple of days in Singapore on the way back as well. Because I've got to change somewhere, so why not take an extra couple of days? I've never done that. I've always just done the whole schlep all in one go. Yeah, I may, I may actually come to regret it by the time I've done all that travelling. 
you know, thinking, my God, I, I just actually wish I could go straight home. But Singapore, I think, will be an interesting place for sure. So, yeah, I reckon I can make that work. You've been to Australia, Noah? No. In fact, I'm thinking I'm so – France, Australia. You guys are – I've been in Nevada, so I got that going for me. In California, and but you got—I mean, I'm just—I'm—I'm I'm green with envy. All the all the places you guys are going to, is this Kenneth? Is this like you're? Do, is this what you're doing? You're you're traveling around doing these workshops? Yeah, at the moment I'm not doing any client work right now, um, and I'm seeing if I can uh, get by with with workshops and training and a bit of writing. Yeah. Um, we shall see. I just kind of wanted a bit of a, a bit of a break from moving pixels around on screen. Sure. But but we'll see. I think it's great because we don't we don't where I am here. I, I'm I'm near a local college and I go and I speak with the students sometime. But the professors, the academics, they can't keep up with stuff that's going on in our industry. It all changes so quickly. So to have somebody as experienced hmm. as yourself going around and putting on these workshops and teaching that's that's worth its weight in gold because we just don't have um, people in academia that are up to date on everything that's going mm-hmm. on out there, you know? So I, I love the idea. And if you could make a go at it, that's that's awesome. Thanks. Well, I mean, I hope I can. I, I would say, though, that, you know, even a practitioner, uh, as a practitioner, it's hard to stay on top of things, isn't it? Um, you know, yeah. I was having a chat with someone very recently um, saying exactly the same. There's, there's always that kind of looming fear that, am I going to be able to keep up with what's changing? And in the design field now, you're seeing so much change around prototyping and motion and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a ton of tools to learn. There's a ton of techniques that all these articles and, you know, annoying people like me say, oh, it's essential. You've got to pick up these skills. It's tiring. You know, I hope I can do my bit to help people uh, explore new areas and stay sharp. But um, it's a it's a tough old field to be in sometimes, you know, with, with that constant demand to stay relevant. It's hard in the field in general, I think. I mean, I've, I've half given up. It used to, I used to be a completist when it came to, you know, reading everything on a list apart or even just, you know, trying to make sure that I'd read everything in my RSS feed. Mm-hmm. You can't now. I mean, it's it's just impossible to keep up with the variety and volume of things. So, you know, there are some things that I'm interested in, you know, SVG, for example, you know, from a technical mm-hmm. point of view. Yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah, I need to learn a little bit about SVG, but I'm going to dip in and out. You know, there's no way that I think that I can be just following everything that's going on. It's just too much. Yeah. It's funny how many websites I, I've, I've, how many, how few websites I visit now. It's it's just it's information overload. I I just I can't even begin to process. And at some point, I'm like you, Andrew. I've kind of given up on trying to be the jack of all trades and just decided I can only keep up on the few things that I need to keep up on, and and that's it. Maybe we can talk about this later on. But maybe instead of keeping up with websites, what we need is an app to collect all of these th- things together into one handy format that's easy to read and uh, and 60 frames a second. Perhaps we need that. Mm-hmm. That sounds like we need a website instead. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a tweet this week, although this will be behind when we release this show, from uh, Matt Hill. He's Matt Hill Co. Co. on Twitter. And he said... I read an article on Medium, then one on the pastry box. Thought I was still on the same site. Where is the identity in web design these days? And at that point, I thought, okay, I know who we need to talk about on the podcast about this topic. It all just became crystal clear. Mm -hmm. Because I think that we three have all been at different ends of this kind of discussion over the last uh, 
year or so. And this whole idea that somehow um, we're maybe not being as creative in inverted commas uh, as potentially we used to be in terms of the visual aspects of the design, this personality or this soul that we keep talking about. That's something which I think is beginning to resonate with, with a lot of people. I mean, Noah, you wrote this article uh, for, was it Creative Block? It was, uh, yeah, it was published in .NET, and then I think they take uh, the print pieces and put them onto Creative Block a couple months after they've they've been in print or something like that. They recycle that. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes to that, but it it reminded me. This is a particular passage from the sort of know, midway through your article, and you've been talking about to old days of web design. I'm not sure when to old days were. Um, <laughs> of what we were wearing perhaps back then. Flares, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I was going to say cheesecloth, but I'm sure Kenneth and I still have some cheesecloth. <clears throat> no, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> you can speak for yourself on that one. Okay, yeah, maybe it's just me. And you were talking about uh, particular websites. You were talking about the CSS Zen Garden. You were talking about things like Style Gala. God, do you remember CSS galleries? Oh, yeah. Before there were galleries of CSS galleries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you actually said you know, those websites featured designs that were so unique, so full of thoughtfulness at every turn. My early exposure to web design was full of soul. So I would say a soul is the intangible details of the design. And this is something that I've been talking about in a sort of a similar way. Um, because I, I don't know, I'm just feeling a little bit like Matt that everything just seems to look the same. I mean, it's not to say that it looks bad. It's not to say that it's not easy to use or well considered or maybe even has good typography. But I've just had this general feeling that people are paying attention to certain aspects of design and what's being lost in the process is what you and I have described as soul. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, initially I, I think I, incorrectly blamed responsive web design um and kind of this whole shift to oh we got to make we got to make everything responsive which of course we do because there's just so many different platforms or devices that we need to design on um or design for um but then then I started to after I kind of stepped back a little bit from that I realized that uh you know, it's, it's just kind of this learning curve and people don't, um, you know, Hey, we can't figure out kind of how to, to put all of those details and flourishes. And we're still trying to figure out how to make this site go from 960 down to 320 and work correctly. Um, so I think there's a little bit of grace there. And would you, would you say, Andrew, I feel like we're, we're it, to a certain extent, we're getting a little bit away from that. Um, you know, I've seen some really um, great sites that are responsive, that are soulful, that I would say are soulful. Um, but for the most part, you know, we, man, I, it was like a dreary couple of years where stuff just looked the same and boxes and grids and, you know, a bootstrap theme with a different color on it. And that was considered design. And, um, you know, you got, you got, people on the other hand saying well you know it should be minimal or obviously flat design and minimal was a was a trend for a while um and now we've got performance coming in which kind of plays into that where you've got um you, you know hey maybe load in less assets and in less detail and in in soul because we need to keep it lightweight um so there's there's a lot of things competing here so there's there's a lot of challenges for 
kind of the modern web designer today, I think. Well, I have heard from people when we've been talking about this, and I have some reactions to the talk that I've been doing where people have said, yeah, actually, we've been concentrating on the mechanics of making something responsive. Um, and along the way, you know, yeah, we, we only had a certain amount of time. So, you know, we needed to, to focus on, you know, making something responsive in terms of the mechanics of it. And actually, I think that's just a bit of a lame excuse, to be honest, because I, I think that people are quite often and quite easily just falling back on the same kind of responsive patterns. Mm -hmm. um, and so much of what we see is pretty much identical. I mean, I hadn't really spotted a, a, a myself, hadn't seen much of a, a comparison between something like Medium and Pastrybox because I don't tend to read either of them. But in terms of just the general um, aesthetic sort of becoming this I don't know, is homogenous the word to use? I don't know. Yeah. Sort of almost like a de facto standard. I mean, you mentioned in your article, um, you linked to something that Elliot J. Stocks had written a couple, I think it was even the year before. Yeah. Um, where he basically said, you know, you click the website link and then the assets begin to load and it's a gigantic photo. And over the photo, you've got a sentence and then there's a button and not just any button, but it's, you know, it's got white type and a transparent background and a thin white border. And I'm just screaming by this point. You know, <laughs> I, I think I, I finished off a talk that I give by saying, you know, listen, you know, the web has to be more than Squarespace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What? And I, and I wonder. I wonder why we seem to have arrived at this point. I mean, obviously, we go through trends. I mean, years ago, Elliot, who we mentioned, was one of those people that had a website that looked as if it had been, I don't know, run over by a truck or washed in the back pocket of your jeans or something, you know, with all of those layers and textures. And yeah. Cameron Mole had his wicked, wicked warm thing. So I know... Yeah. I know that there are these, you know, design styles and phases that, that come in and out like any kind of fashion. But we just seem to have reached a point where we seem to be lacking imagination. And it's not just on the visual side, which I, you know, we can talk about now, but I think it's in terms of the way that we are selling what it is that we're designing for. Um, and that leads on to, you know, what websites and apps and whatever are for. But I just think that at the moment, there's just like this lack of imagination almost. Yeah. I do think the, the user experience industry has potentially, uh, brought that trend on, um, just that little bit quicker. I mean, if you look back to, you know, the, the original kind of wild west of web design, um, you know, and everything went and it was all very low quality generally. Um, but you had people like Jake, Jacob Nielsen saying, well, hey, come on, this is terrible. 99% of this is bad. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. And people started to listen. And an industry started to form around taking some of those principles and presenting at least the veneer of scientific process and rigor to to design. That's something I, I generally reject, to be honest. I don't believe design is scientific. But um, at least that mindset, I think, started to take hold. And I think it's natural that that's going to dampen creativity in some way. Um, you know, if you have research articles and so on that say that, oh, you know, animation you should avoid, for instance, then hey, guess what's going to happen? There's not going to be much animation on your uh on your websites much longer. Because that's quite a persuasive thing to be able to throw in front of your colleagues and say, look, here's proper science, here's proper research. Uh, and people prioritize that stuff and they they put it on a pedestal too much, to be honest. But I think that's partly what's what's caused it. You know, we've seen a sort of repression in stylistic 
you know, action or stylistic uh, flair um, in favor of, well, you know, this, this idea that if you're, if you're a good user experience designer, your style shouldn't be visible at all in the site, in the product, uh, which again, I reject, but I think there's that sort of slightly selfless notion that the designer's hand should be completely invisible in the work that he or she creates. And it should all just be about serving the needs of the end user. Um, I think it's a fairly immature uh, approach, to be honest. Uh, and it's not one that does the cause of design any favors, but I can see why that kind of attitude is appealing. So maybe that's part of it. That's my hypothesis. I think there's an awful lot in that. I mean, I was I t- retweeted uh, Matt's tweet a couple of days ago. And somebody got back to me and said, isn't it just like paperback books? Shouldn't it be about the content? You know, we just want to be creating something that makes the content readable. Um, And I hear this argument a lot. It shouldn't be about the design per se. Like you say, the design should be invisible. It should be about the content or the functionality or getting from A to B, etc. And I think there has to be more to design than that. I think the sort of that sort of argument is exactly the same argument as... um you know, people who decry style over substance. But if you give these two topics any amount of consideration, you know, any decent amount of consideration, you see that you can't separate style from substance. Substance has to be delivered through some vehicle. The medium has a style to it. Um, and for me, yeah, of course you prioritize content. Of course content is important. But content plus design come together to create something uh, more powerful, which is meaning. And I wrote about this a little while back and I had the example and I just mocked up like a flyer for, um, uh, learning to fly, you know, take some flight lessons, etc. And I did one in a professional type as like Gar- Garamond and nice sort of stock photo and, you know, confidence sort of inspiring, uh, solidity to the design. And then I did a shitty version in Comic Sans and, you know, badly cropped and clip art and things like that. I said, well, yeah, the content's the same, but the meaning behind these things is significantly different. So I, I understand why people say that we should prioritize content and privilege it more than anything else. But content is in turn shaped by the medium through which it travels. And that medium is design or text or imagery or whatever it is. And to say that that is this this neutral crystalline vessel that you know has has no influence on how it's perceived i think is a is a is a falsehood i think those two things come together to create something even more powerful i agree with you kenneth and i i'm a fan of you know what like i said in in that article that i had written i grew up when we were all just kind of exploring uh css was coming on the scene and people were just starting to realize look at all these things we could do faux columns and sliding doors and kind of all of this stuff that was happening and and people were experimenting and reaching out and your identity um was your blog or your personal website um and i was a fan of just taking in uh the artistic side of that right that this is this is a work of art this person um, you know, whether it was a work of art with the code that they did or the design or a combination of the both, um, I explored every page and read every page because I was enamored with everything, the entire package, um, you know, and so uh, I think there's something there that, that, that you know, there is an audience who who wants kind of the combination of both. I also think there's an audience who doesn't, couldn't tell the difference, Kenneth, between your Comic Sans and your... Uh, you know, nicely done Garamon style flyer. They would just go, "Oh, look, it's a it's flying lessons." Um, my wife See, would I, be in I, that I category. I disagree. I I don't think anyone would treat those things as as similar in terms of meaning. They may not be able to uh, 
elucidate exactly why one builds confidence and one mm. doesn't build confidence. But I don't think anyone, given those two flyers, would say, hey, that sounds great. Sign me up for whichever one. You know, I think they'd all gravitate toward the one with the, the more professional appearance. It's, you know, it's kind of primitive psychological impact that design can have. Yeah. Um, you know, hard to, hard to explain, but I think it is real. Yeah. Well, you should meet some of my ex clients. <laughs> Your ex clients. Yeah. You got to let them go at a certain point. Right. <laughs> I think that I say this in my talk that I've been giving, you know, like good art, good design needs to stand for something. And when you make choices in design, um, those choices should reflect your own principles and your own stamp on the work as much as they reflect the content of, you know, that you're trying to convey. Um, and I find it slightly, uh, disconcerting and, and almost kind of, um, disrespectful sometimes when people talk about the content being the most important thing and almost what so many of us spend so much time doing, which is crafting type or working with color semantics or whatever. And people talk about, um, in a dismissive way, making a website pretty. As if somehow there's not a huge amount of skill that goes into that. And, you know, not everybody can do it. Um, and yet somehow we've arrived at this point where we think that the subjective sides of the design, um, is somehow, um, superficial. And I don't believe it is. I agree 100%. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think maybe Andrew, even you mentioned, did you say laziness? I think. You know, people, if we are focusing 100% on the content, you know, it's kind of like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll grab a template that I've been working with and I'll, and I'll slap the content in there and, and we'll call that, we'll call that good. Um, but yeah, I, I'm with you. I, you know, I've, it, uh, it's bothered me for, for a long time. Um, and I, and I got, I, I got a lot of heat. Um, from from just my Twitter circle of of people calling me out uh, for saying it, but it seems like we're we're getting more and more folks who are starting to recognize the uh, homogeneous nature of things out there. I wonder if there's something else uh, at play here as well, which is the audience for whom we're designing. We're full of rhetoric saying that it's designed for the end user, but I suspect the truth is we're designing for each other, particularly with things like medium. Uh, or anything that has, you know, a design audience or a web audience. We want to impress our colleagues. It's a presentation of self as designer, uh, more than it is, you know, legitimately trying to serve user needs. That strikes me very much like the scene in American Psycho, if you've seen it, the film, where they're comparing business cards. Um, I shan't go into the details too much, but these are, you know, these business cards look bloody identical. Um, but this psychotic, um, executive is obsessed by how his card is inferior to the next person's and so on. It becomes this, this self-reinforcing fear that, Oh, I'm not good enough that I, I have to make something that's accepted by my peers. Um, and I'm just less and less interested in designing stuff that's impressive to my colleagues. I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't really care. I, I'm, I think we, it would do us good as an industry to stop trying to impress ourselves. I was just going to say, do you think Kenneth, that goes with, with, um, time in the industry and uh, just kind of the natural path of uh, those of us who have been around for over a decade and you just start to go, well, I, you know, 
I don't care as much. I'm just, you know, you're doing the work for the client and nobody else. And whereas when you're younger and you're upstart, you, you know, you want to impress your peers. You want to, you want to make a splash, make a name for yourself. Um, cause I feel like I'm, I'm along the same way where, uh, I, I don't share my work on dribble or, um, really anywhere anymore because I, I just don't care to, I don't need that need met, I guess. Yeah, I think I think the agent experience thing probably comes into it a, a bit. I do want to just say something in defense of Dribble because it gets a ton of shit. Um, and, you know, I've read like at least a couple, two or three posts saying designers become, you know, dribbleized and it leads us to this frothy superficiality. Um, Dribble has its place. Dribble has some very good uh, intent behind it, I think. It can be used in a, in a way that's not terribly constructive. But, um, you know, I just wanted to speak up in his defense and say it's, it's just a tool for sharing things. Um, and that can be for positive, you know, actual genuine improvement and, and critique and things like that. And sure, it can be for negative, you know, hey, check out this impressive thing I just did. Uh, you know, sign your plaudits below. Yeah, I, I think you're right, though. It might, it might be an age thing. Maybe we just, you know, get sufficiently old and sufficiently grumpy and we realize that actually, yeah, we want to focus more outward than inward. I still have a hankering, though, for people discovering things within the work that we do. I mean, you know, oh, I haven't got time and I probably won't have time for another couple of months to put the, the new design for the Stuff and Nonsense site live. But I know that we have two audiences. You know, we have the people that hire us to do work, and that's one audience we have to serve. But the other audience still, because, you know, people buy books and come to workshops and, and stuff like that. Yeah, there is still a web designer audience out there. And that's why I put little responsive gags in there and, you know, the odd class name that people still email me and say, do you really hate Tim Van Damme? Um, <laughs> and all this kind of stuff, which I don't, by the way. So I, I don't know. I, I still kind of think that I'm not look, setting out to impress people, but I am still wanting to entertain them. Yeah, and I get that. I love that. That's because that, but that's that's who you are. I feel like that's because you're passionate about what you do, right? Um, and 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 I would be the same way. I, now I'm going to have to dig into your source code, Andrew. There's not an awful lot in the current version. This talk that I've been giving over the last year or so, I call it creativity over predictability. It's all a, it's got a tenuous Mad Men theme, and. Part of this talk, I wonder why we have lost the soul that we've talked about and what the reasons could be. And I'm, if you don't mind, just go through a couple of them and see whether we can sort of, you know, see whether I'm right or wrong or, or where this thing goes. Because part of me wonders whether or not, um, it's to do with the, the fact that we focus so much these days on design processes. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to point a finger at atomic design, which is something that I do in the talk. We've become so obsessed with um, that kind of process and our magazines, whether it's, you know, online or offline, are so full of these articles about tools and process. But, you know, when was the last time um, he, says, he says this after we've just plugged Richard Rutter's web typography book. But, you know, when was the last time that we read an article that was purely about um, the reasons for choosing a particular typeface or a particular um, layout ratio or something like that? We don't, you never hear them. You don't see it. It's true. Um, I, I think process has its place. For, for people who are working in larger companies where there's, you know, politics and, and 
you know, sort of upstream difficulty, having some process helps you to make a stronger case for the way you work and for trying to get the right values embedded in the work you, you produce. Um, essentially it's, it's a vehicle to improve your effectiveness as a designer, you know, to make sure you get high quality things shipped. That said, I do think we over prioritize process. I'm actually more interested in, in raw skill. Uh, and that's something I've written about, uh, written about previously. I think one thing we've maybe got weaker at is the ability to really zoom out and to consider how well does this design work in the context of, you know, this page work in the context of the rest of the site or the rest of the product. How does it work in context of the design of the brand and so on? And I think maybe we've zoomed in a bit too far. You know, we're, we're focusing very much on components. We're looking at style guides, pattern libraries. We're looking at, you know, atomic kind of units of, of design, which is great. We should do that. We also need to make sure that we can stitch those things together to be a coherent and interesting whole. And I think we've got worse at that or we've just neglected it. I worry that our elders in the industry um, or the magazines that people read. Um, I worry that younger designers that we've both written to, um, people that are in college universities right now, um, when they look at our industry, the conversation is all about the process and all about the tools and the methodology and very little about the human side of things, the humanity in the design. Um, and I worry about that. You know, I wonder, worry about what we're teaching kids. We're still pretty young as an industry. And I think there's still a lot of floundering of um, urgency, you know, whether it's behind, oh, worry about this thing, now worry about that thing, now worry about this. And we're still kind of getting our footing um, to a certain extent, uh, extent. So when people push a particular process. Um, I think Kenneth's right. It doesn't allow us to kind of focus on the holistic if we're digging in that deep. Um, but it's, it's, you know, t- people trying to kind of make a push and say, well, we really need to be focusing on this. And because we we're kind of carving, you know, the way for a lot of folks, those, those of us who have been around for, um, this long, um, in the industry, um, you know, have a little bit more experience, but we're, but we're still kind of, I think, shaping um, where this profession is going to go, um, you know, even in terms of, you know, and I know it's off topic for this, but just even how do you how do you operate your web design business, right? Um, a lot of small studios are um, figuring out those processes, too. And so um, I, I think that's part of it. And I think it, these things kind of kind of come and go. Um but I think as you get older and further in, maybe that that maturity kind of comes where you go, yeah, it's not the process is good, yes, of course, but there's more to it than just that. That's not the golden ticket to making great design. People have said that to me. They've said, well, I think that this, what I consider to be this kind of lack of soul or this um, emphasis on, I don't know what it may be product design, UX, process tools, all this kind of stuff, um, is a sign of the industry maturing. And I, and, I, and I think that will be very sad. It's a sign of it commercializing, for sure. Uh, because there's more rigor, there's more reliability, there's more predictability uh, in those, those kind of approaches. And, you know, I, I hesitate to blame capitalism for everything. But sometimes, you know, the, the realities are that you, you've got to get something out and some of these... Uh, skills that are maybe considered more divergent and more sort of on the fringes of what it takes to, you know, ship a commercially viable product, they, they will get uh, left behind or neglected. 
One of the other things I talk about in my Counting Stars talk is I wonder whether or not our emphasis today or greater emphasis on things like user research or research in general and testing means that actually instead of taking risks with the design we're kind of just I don't know, delegating the decisions to somebody else you know we're kind of abdicating responsibility for those designs yeah i think that's exactly what's happening uh, i think most user experience designers are brought into a business to reduce risk they're there to improve the predictability of design which is seen as something you know, that, that business owners and execs need to get under control because designers, if you let them, they'll, they'll take you into, you know, sort of dark avenues you don't want to explore. Uh, and the UX industry has sold itself very successfully at, uh, as, as a means of reducing risk. Um, and most businesses, you know, they say they love risk, but the reality is they don't. I mean, you know, executives will do anything they can to try and minimize it and good for, you know, good. Good for the UX industry in, in having done that. But you're right. The, the effect is that we become less risky in our approaches. And I think sometimes we overtest, sometimes we overresearch, uh, to prop up the lack of confidence that we have in our design teams or in our abilities individually to execute on, on something a bit bolder. I would love to see us get a bit less obsessed with risk. I mean, I know I joke about it in the talk. I do a big shtick about PG tips chimpanzees and, you know, that whole campaign from the 1950s onwards. And I say, you know, did the idea for that campaign come because PG asked a focus group? You know, did they conduct some audience research? And no, they didn't. You know, there's a guy walking around what used to be London uh, Regent's Park Zoo, now London Zoo. He sees chimpanzees dressed up, having a tea party. He thinks, what a great idea for an ad. And it's completely random and ended up being this legendary, if not quite so fair on the chimpanzees, campaign for the next 32 years. Um, and I just wonder sometimes, it's like, well, are we kind of just, I don't know, minimizing the risk so much that, there's no room for that kind of stuff in web design. I'm not talking about in the wider advertising industry, but in web design. I, I think we are. I think we just kind of pick that pattern that works or that we think works or that somebody has told us that it works. Um, but at the same time, you know, how did we kind of come to that pattern or how do we kind of establish that? Um, and, and does that necessarily mean that there's not a better way that, that has yet to be discovered? Um, you know, we saw a lot of that with, with mobile app development, um, where, where people were figuring things out. Um, but the web seems to have gotten stale in that regard. And, um, nobody's taking those risks to kind of go, yeah, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this new thing. Um, and maybe that becomes the, the, the established pattern years down the road or something. Um, but if we, if we stop kind of challenging the status quo, you know, we're going to end up with a pretty, pretty boring and stale uh, state of affairs for web design. I would say just your PG tics, uh, tips example, Andrew, makes me think of something, though, which is if that were to happen now, if someone were to say, you know, walk past Regent's, Regent's Park and see the, the, the chim chimps and say that'd be a fantastic advert, it would bomb and it would rightly bomb because we now regard that kind of treatment of animals as unacceptable in, in this day and age. A little bit of user research there would help. <laughs> you know, if someone comes along to a focus group or does some, you know, test showings or something like that, you know, some storyboards and so on, then that is going to tell you very quickly, this is not a route, a, a route that you should, um, 
you know, progressed at. So it does have, does have value. I just think we over, you know, we over test, we over research when we lack confidence, essentially to try and prop up uh, our own, our own failings and our own vulnerabilities. I'd love to see us be a bit braver, but not so brave that we stop putting you know, chimpanzees back in TV ads. Well, maybe CGI chimpanzees in, in ads yeah. would be fine. But yeah. no, I love that. It's about confidence. And I think that maybe it's not that we're lacking creativity, it's that we're lacking confidence in, you know, our own abilities to say, do you know what? That's a bloody good idea. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's, you know, you see a 41 shades of blue or however many it was. Well, we've got all these ideas. How do we find out which, you know, which is the be- the best definitively? Well, let's go to the numbers. Um, which is, you know, a nonsense idea as far as I'm concerned, but it happens. We've argued online, I hope, um, congenially, um, about this whole kind of thing, about the idea. And you said something along the lines of in your letter to junior designers, um, perhaps your teachers taught you that the idea is the gem of creative work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you say, well, no, it has to be wrung dry, ripped apart, I think with your exact mm. words. Yes. Um, that's correct. And, that seems to be at odds almost with what you're saying now in terms of, you know, no, we need to have this sort of spark of creativity going on. What I haven't communicated there is that we need those sparks and then we need to analyse them very carefully and hopefully create better ones from that. You know, if you have an idea, that doesn't mean it's the right, that that's, doesn't mean that's your right approach. That's 1% of the work done, if that. Take the idea, see how it, you know, hammer it into shape, see, well, how would it fit with this uh, this product we're building or with the needs of the business with the needs of the user you'll find what doesn't work and you'll iterate on that uh, that idea and you'll come to better ideas through that what i was railing against in the article was really the idea that the idea is is your main deliverable uh which certainly seems to be the case still in in large parts of the advertising world and i see it still in some parts of the web world and that i absolutely disagree with the execution is is everything and that's when you need to take the idea and say, this is really promising. Now let's bash it around. Let's see what it mutates into. Uh, and it may be you throw it away or you throw dozens of them away. But you, there's, there's always, one hopes, going to be some central idea behind all the work that you do. I think that the idea and the strategy and the execution are everything. I think what we lack sometimes in web design today, particularly, is that strategy. I mean, we talked about needing more creativity in in web design, but why would be the answer? And the reason why is not just design for design's sake or to make my ego even bigger than it is. The idea is that it's supposed to fulfill a strategy. And, you know, that comes from business logic. It comes from art direction. It comes from all kinds of stuff that we sort of forget. Um, And I think it's it comes down to a sort of I don't know whether misunderstanding is the right word, but a confusion, yeah, a confusion over what it is that we're actually making and why. I mean, one of the questions that I ask in this talk that I do is, have we become so fixated by designing digital products in inverted commas that actually, you know, we've forgotten that the web is a medium for communication. It's a medium for selling things, not in e-commerce style, but for persuasion, for changing people's perceptions. You know, it's a medium for all of that that's way outside of applications. And I think that that confusion is, is playing a part in this lack of kind of creative flair as well. Everything's a bloody product. <laughs> not everything's a product. What's a product and not a product? Here we go. Right. Okay, here we go. We go we go straight into it then. Okay, so 
in the old days, it was easy because, you know, if you dropped a product on your foot, it hurt. That was a product. Now, it's, it is a lot less easy to define. Um, but just because it's harder to elicit the difference between two things does not mean they're the same thing. Um, I'll also gladly accept and, and, and agree that it's a continuum that many sites have product like aspects to them. But again, I do not equate those two things. For me, the main difference between a website and a, and a product and a digital product is that as a designer, you are primarily dealing with behavior in a product and you're primarily dealing with information on a site. Now, that's not to say there are no information uh, manipulation exercises to be done inside apps and that there's no behavior in, in websites because there is, but it's just not the primary thing uh, that that you're delivering with. Uh, that you're that you're designing with. Um, there's also a, a platform thing. Obviously, websites are delivered via a web browser. A digital product can be delivered via any means, including native apps or um, you know physical buttons and uh, you know sort of services uh, that sit behind that supporting the product. Another way I like to think of it. Um, again, it's none of these lenses are perfect, but I think this is something that's stuck in my head recently. Is I kind of think about the size of something compared to the human. So when I'm thinking about building a website, I think that I'm building, a, you know, a structure, a building, you know, some kind of space. Uh, it's larger than a human and it's something that people move through and they navigate and they can inhabit digital space, I think, in much the same way as we can inhabit physical space. A product, I think, is smaller than a human. I think a product is something you manipulate. It's like putty or it's a, it's a screwdriver. Or it's something like that, that you the human take action on and it responds to you in a way that a building doesn't. So I think that kind of thinking about the order of magnitude, the scale of the thing helps me. So a site is larger than a human. A product is smaller than a human kind of conceptually. I don't know if that's a helpful uh, distinction for you or for our listeners, but that's the one that's kind of been sticking in my head the most, I think of late. Going back to what Andrew said about everything is a product these days. I feel like a lot of designers are racing to work on a product, whether they're working on a proper product um, that's paying their salary or they're trying to start up their own. Um, we don't we don't spend a lot of time kind of designing things outside of that anymore, um, in part because I feel like th- those things that we would design would be our, in days of yore, would be our personal websites or our blogs. And those have been... Um, you know, all but forgotten, uh, for other means of social media. Um, and so I, I can see what you're saying, Andrew, that everything does feel like a product. Everything that you're looking at is, um, you know, it's not really just that it looks like a product. I think that I'm, I'm railing against the fact that, um, you know, I mean, I know that there are legitimate products and I know that there are legitimate product designers, but it seems to me the general kind of trend is that websites aren't cool anymore and, you know, everybody, everybody designs products or wants to work on a product. Um, and that, that's really one of the things that I'm, I'm talking about. I'm going to be blunt though. Um, and that is what people are telling me. Um, I speak with a ton of user experience designers and all of them. Um, whisper sort of, you know, sotto voce behind their hands. You know, what I really want to do is work on products. Um, now there's, there's some confirmation bias here, of course, because I have worked on products. Um, and I sort of made that transition. I did, I did web stuff and I don't do, I don't do websites anymore. I, I only do digital products. 
So yeah, sure, I'm going to get people who are interested in that transition. But it's it's literally a hundred percent of the uh, people in the field that I speak to. Um, you know, it, it all get to that kind of point in the end. Um, and you know, whether we think that's a good or a bad thing, I think that is a real, that is a legitimate trend. You know, I don't mind that. I honestly don't mind that. It's like if, if user experience designers or web designers or whatever we call people now just said, do you know what? I really want to work on building bridges. You know, mm. that's what I want to do. I want, I want to go lay tarmac. That would be absolutely fine. I think what I'm having trouble with is that because the industry isn't so mature, if what Noah says is right, then what we're finding is that there is this kind of, I don't know, almost confusion and people rushing to make products is, is absolutely fine, but that is not necessarily the web. You know, the web is more than that. And, you know, I make a joke often when I say, you know, I don't design power tools. You know, to me, that's a product. You know, I don't make pro- I don't design or make power tools. What my job is, is to create a website that convinces you to buy a Black & Decker instead of a Bosch. So this actually touches on another way that I like to think of the distinction between a, a site and a product. It's not universal, but for me, a product has is direct value. It's the thing, right? And a website frequently has indirect value. It's a thing talking about the thing. And so what you're talking about there is you're building the thing that talks about the product. That's great. And there's, there's always going to be a role for that. And there's, there's a lot of sophisticated work to be done in that field. It's just not for me. I want to make the product. I want to make the drill, but it's, you know, it's electronic or, you know, whatever it is. I want to make the thing that delivers the end value rather than the thing talking about that thing, if you see what I mean. No, and I completely respect that. And I think that if people realize that there are these two different sides of things and potentially even treated them differently, although there are, of course, there are crossovers, then we might be at a better, more creative place on my end of the industry where I feel things are lacking right now. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and I, you know, and I do think there is a different skill set. Uh, clearly there's some overlap, a uh, big overlap, but, um, there are different skills required to make products and to make, uh, websites. Um, well, I think that neither is better, neither is worse. It's just the direction you choose to go. I, I personally, I find website design less, less exciting than digital product design right now. But, um, I think recognizing that they they are slightly different skills. I, I totally agree, and I made that point, and um, not everyone agreed. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I, I'm 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 with you, Kenneth. I think there seems to be this natural progression of oh, I do client services, do website stuff, and then you move to product, and that's kind of the fresh set of challenges. And I think the blurry line is like, oh, well, the product is is on the web, so I, I know how to do that. Um, but I think the mm. skills are 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 very different. Um, and I think that, um, you would be naive to kind of go from web into product, uh, you know, right out of the gate and go, oh, well, I've, I've got this down. You know, I think there's, um, a whole new set of considerations there, um, to be made for a product designer. So I think there's a pretty good differentiation between the two, but I also think it's that natural progression. You know, I moved essentially from client services to product this year. Um, and, and, it's a learning curve. I'm cutting my teeth, you know, this is, but I, I, I needed that new challenge and that's why I, I kind of made that move. I was ready for something new. Kenneth, there's a workshop that you could go to. I think he's doing one in San Francisco. <laughs> I think I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that what matters to me is this 
I don't know, sort of distinction in a way. And there are crossovers. If I'm going to be producing a website to sell um, my favorite vodka, then I'm going to want that website to download quickly. Performance is obviously an issue. You know, I hope that gone are the days when we put things in gratuitously into websites because, or unthinkingly, because not only is that not good design, but it, it doesn't fall under the strategy. You know, the strategy should be to get people to buy Beluga vodka, for example. Um, so obviously performance plays a key role in that design, as does so many other factors that come in terms of web design, you know, responsiveness and, um, and everything else. But I think that there is still room in the industry, and this is somewhere where we are really trying to focus on, okay, so how do you get the guy to drink that vodka rather than somebody else's vodka? You know, the same mm-hmm. first episode of Mad Men where Don Draper's sitting in a bar um, and he's trying to get the waiter to explain why he smokes old gold and can he persuade him to start smoking Lucky Strike? Mm-hmm. God, if Jeremy Keith was having this conversation, we'd be talking about smoking by now, but not an awful lot else. But that's the kind of thing that fascinates me. And I suppose, yeah, you know, there's psychology in there in exactly the same way that there is with, um, you know, in user experience terms, I imagine, not that I do it. So I imagine that there are these kind of crossovers, but that's the thing. There's a, there's a space there, and that's what we want to do. That takes me back even to how do I convince, um, you know, this person to drink this vodka over this one? Um, I feel like that comes with... I feel like the difference there is we're going to make this website with soul. You know, we're going to make something that fascinates something that, um, is that much different, uh, that, that draws a person in. I feel like those are, those are kind of the differentiating things, but you know, in that line, uh, of work. I think, you know, if you look at the, the Venn diagram, um, essentially the, the, the debate is just the, the amount of overlap. And I think it's a significant overlap, but it's probably not a majority. It's out of 50% or something like that. But when I've seen people with more of a, a sort of web agency, website agency kind of background move into product work, um, I've not seen it go so well because there are some facets there that I think are missing or that you don't explore quite as strongly. Um, and you're thrown, you, you really have to you know, live with the decisions you make and, you know, things like spam might be something you've suddenly got to start considering, you know, user behavior, uh, negative user behavior. How could that enact itself in the thing you're building, which is something you tend not to have to think about so much on, on website, uh, build projects. Um, and so, you know, when I've been a hiring manager for, for product people, I, I'd far rather, rather hire someone with, you know, two years experience or somewhere, I don't know, LinkedIn or something like that than someone with five years web agency. Uh, website agency stuff because their, their skill set is probably that bit closer to what's going to be required on the product side longer term. I'd love to find out more about the product design process. It's why I'm, you know, I'm gutted that I can't come to your workshop in, you know, in a few weeks time. Um, you know, hopefully at some point in the future, it, it is an area that fascinates me. I just, it's not an area that I want to go down particularly. You know, I'm, st- I'm, mm. I'm kind of moving in, in, in the opposite direction. And I think that's okay. Totally. God, we need, we need good people doing all sorts of digital stuff. I mean, you know, the, the amount of digital material in the world is going to keep going up and up and it's going to need terrific designers. Now, some of that's going to be direct product work. Some of it's going to be website work. Some of it's going to be marketing, uh, marketing. Some of it's 
going to be, you know, customer relationship sort of uh, stuff or all that kind of thing. We need good designers on all of these. Um, and when I talk about digital product designer, um, you know, I had a couple of interpretations which I thrown at me, which I thought were a bit uncharitable. This is really a sort of self-aggrandizing thing. And I was like, I don't, I don't see it as that. I mean, I, I certainly don't intend it that way. It's just, that's what I want to do. I want to build digital products. So I coalesce among the community that, that call themselves digital product designers and that focus on that. I think it's okay. Somebody that, that builds or designs a digital product, and I, th- I think that that's okay. I think calling yourself a digital product designer is absolutely the right thing because that's in fact what you do. Yeah. I find that there is this kind of tendency for people to call themselves product people that potentially aren't um, in the same way that maybe they did the same thing with user experience. Um, and in exactly the same way that people rarely talk about designing websites on their portfolios anymore they all handcraft digital experiences mm-hmm. which you know drives me to distraction yeah because i think it devalues actual product designers you know to me johnny ive he's a product designer um and it's the same thing with engineering i know i'm going off on a, on a tangent here but it's when people call themselves engineers software engineers you know to me the bridge that i drove over to manhattan last week had you know umpteen million rivets that were made by hand you know i walk over a bridge between england and wales that was designed and built by thomas telford that guy was an engineer if you can walk over it it was made by an engineer dicking around with an algorithm not engineering. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, algorithms are easy. Just think of another word. You know, people are creative. Think of another word because, you know, dicking around with, with an algorithm kind of devalues the real world of engineering, which is a bridge that you can walk over. No, I get you. I just don't agree. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I'm increasingly less happy with this distinction between digital and real and digital and physical than saying that these are two separate things and one is the real world and one is the digital world because technology has colonized our own world you know we used to think of those as separate destinations you know it was cyberspace you went to a through a portal into this into this realm but they've they just come together and that's going to happen more and more and more and the things we considered physical experiences physical engineering cars automotive engineering will become not only an automotive engineering challenge but it will become a software design challenge and a software engineering challenge because the experience of driving a car in 20 or 30 years or being driven by a car will be almost exclusively a software experience. You'll open the door, you'll sit in, but then the rest is entirely software. So those worlds are coming together. And I think that distinction, that sort of, um, you know, that, that sort of dipolar view where you've got, you know, it's north or south, it's physical or it's digital. I, that for me is, is what's collapsing. So I, I think it's perfectly acceptable for a software engineer to call themselves as a, an engineer, I believe an information architect could be called an information, an information architect. Although architects hate that they, they do that, but I, I think it's fine because I don't believe in that. What feels to me a, a slightly false separation of those two worlds now. Interesting. I suppose it's an age thing. I, I still, I mean, I understand that, you know, I'm going to get in a car in five or 10 years and it's going to be mainly software and, and not, not an awful lot of hardware. But this kind of blurring of the lines between physical spaces and online spaces, I still have a problem with. It's when people say, you know, in my mentions on Twitter, 
as if it's some kind of physical space. It's like, you know, get out of my mentions or something, as if it's some mm-hmm. kind of room that you're in. I, st- I have trouble with that because I'm still of an age, I suppose, where, you know, I go online. <laughs> Despite the fact that I'm carrying several devices around that are connected to wherever they're connected to 24 hours a day, I still think about going online to do something. So I, I do have a problem with that. But I think it's a, it's a cultural age thing. It could be. And I think, you know, if you talk with information architects about this, they will um, doubtless point to studies that suggest people do have mental models uh, that they inhabit digital digital spaces, digital places in much the same way as they do physical uh, places as well. Um, and like I say, you know, per my previous point, those are just going to get closer and closer. They're going to converge with time. But I don't think of Twitter as a physical space or even a a space that I can enter. I think of it as, I think of it like a product. If you want to, I use Twitter. I don't go to Twitter. I use Twitter. I don't think of Instagram as a community. hate that word. I don't think of it like that. I just use Instagram as a product that helps me look at nice pictures. And that I think takes me back to what I was saying about the conceptual size of something. Is it something larger that I inhabit or is it something smaller like putty that I play with? And that for me, I, I agree with you. I think of Twitter more as, you know, a tool, you know, putty, something I, 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 I manipulate rather than something I move from room to room. There's a bit of both, but, um, yeah, I, I probably agree with you on that. I think the younger generation is, uh, they inhabit those spaces. Like that, that is their world. All of those, what we, what we would, what we would say, Hey, I use this tool that that's their reality, you know, and that's something that would be an age thing. Andrew, that um, I don't understand it, but these people live in these online worlds and that's, that is their real world. That's their physical space, I would say. Well, we could talk about this literally for the rest of the evening. And <laughs> maybe what we should do is to defer this to another podcast. Sounds good. Because there's a hell of a lot more that we could talk about. Yes. And I know you've probably got better things to do. So we should wrap it up. Would you come back on and, and do this again? Gladly. Love to. Excellent. So people can follow you, Kenneth, on Twitter. You are at Kenneth. That's spelt the Welsh way. C-E-N-N-Y-D-D. Correct. Took a while, though. Took a while even living here to realise that the double D was a th. Once you know that, the rest is easy. Yeah. And what's the other one? There's the double L, which I can never pronounce correctly because I can't speak Welsh. Ah, that's a Yeah. So you do that better than me. 17 years, and I can only say like three things in Welsh, and one of those is, <laughs> is, uh, is, Diaiang Diach. People can follow you, Noah, on Twitter. You are Mother Futon. Where the hell does that come from? <laughs> Nobody knows, but it, it is what it is. <laughs> and of course, I'll put links to your actual websites because you exist outside of Twitter, mm. um, in the show notes. People can follow me at Malarkey and to ask questions and suggest topics. You can message this show on Twitter at unfinishedbz or bz, or you can email me, he has at unfinished.bz. And because I've spent most of this episode trying to get plugs in for various things, um, if you get five minutes and you like the show, could you please leave me uh, a nice review or even a mediocre review on iTunes? That would be wonderful. And I mustn't forget to thank Shopify for helping to support this show. Thanks, fellas.